Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Three-time NBA champion BJ Armstrong has a great new podcast here with Podcast One Sportsnet. Join BJ and his co-host Gerald Brown on their new show, In the Key, as they break down the latest news and happenings in the NBA playoffs as well as music and entertainment. Check out In the Key every Thursday at Podcast One Sportsnet and Apple Podcasts. Also remember to rate and review. Welcome to Real Gym Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Early May is a, a really interesting time in the NBA because you have not only the second round of the playoffs, and of course there's a lot to talk about there, but also the coaching carousel and starting to get a little bit into the offseason elements. So a great person to talk to who is comfortable in all of those areas is Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. He's been following all of these different elements closely, and so we did... We covered a lot of ground on this episode. That's why it's it's not on the longish side. I mean, we've done two hour ones, but I I think it's really impressive how much we got to because I would just throw ideas out and he would, he would give his insight. And this episode is brought to you by BetDSI. You can check them out, betdsi.com slash realgm, and you can get up to $2,500 on with your first deposit. Also, Hims, a new wellness brand for men. You can go to www.4hims.com slash real, R-E-A-L, for a trial month for just $5 while supplies last, which is awesome. And then our friends at True Car, a great place to buy a new or a used car. The podcast runs about an hour 25, lots of detail in there, cover, as I said, a lot of ground, all four series, coaching carousel, Kawhi Leonard at the end. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Always good to do it, Danny. A lot of ground that we could theoretically cover, even though there are only four series left. And what I was thinking about this morning before we recorded was how much shifted, even if the large scale stuff probably didn't, with the way that the seeding came out. And so part of that is probably because I was writing Portland's offseason preview this morning. And, you know, so some of these teams, I think the gravity in the West was going towards the Warriors and Rockets meeting in the conference finals. That is far from a set thing at this point. And, you know, in the, in the East, Cleveland, I thought was going to be better than, than what they've shown. Also, Boston's injuries. But a lot of these team-by-team situations, I'm thinking of, you know, Minnesota, for example, or Oklahoma City, or what's going on right now in Toronto, the existential crisis, if you want to call it that, that they're going through, is affected by just how a couple of these little things shook out on the last couple of days of the season. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, you think Toronto would have would have preferred to have the uh, 
you know, the, the Sixers lose that game that I was at in, in Philadelphia against the Cavs that last Friday of the regular season, I, I think they probably would feel a lot differently if they were two games into a series with the Sixers as opposed to, uh, you know, two games into a series with the Cavs. And look, like, if you go back to the regular season, right, Cleveland, the one team in the East Cleveland had a losing record against in the regular season was Indiana. And, you know, perhaps that was just a really bad matchup for the Cavs. And, you know, for as, you know, as bad as they looked, I was at Game 7 on Sunday, you know, thinking, man, LeBron goes out with cramps to start the end of the third quarter. You're thinking, man, this could be it. And, you know, they survived that series, and now they get Toronto, who they've owned for years, and they look like they're going to dust them again. And, you know, like you said, you even go back to the West, right? Portland had this great season. They get a really bad matchup for them in the first round. They get bounced. Minnesota's a team that could have, you know, given different teams trouble. Uh, they get probably the worst matchup for them. They get bounced pretty easy. Oklahoma City probably would have had a lot easier time with a lot of different teams. They get a bad matchup for them. They get bounced. I mean, it is, you know, the playoffs in particular are, you know, the regular season, as you go through the 82 games, it's about maximizing your strengths to get as many wins as possible. But when you get to the playoffs, it's really about who can take advantage of the other team's weaknesses more in a series. And, you know, you've seen in all those different matchups, pretty good teams went up against teams that could really exploit their weaknesses, and that resulted in all of them going home sooner than they would have liked. Yeah, and it, it can also be the severity of a team's strengths. LeBron is a good example of this. And I was struck in Game 2 of Cavs-Raptors by how little Toronto tried to mitigate Cleveland's strengths. So one obvious way to do that is I thought OG Ananobi has done a very nice job in LeBron so far in the series, and they just haven't played Ananobi enough. He only played 25 minutes in regulation of Game 1, and then I think he was somewhere around like high 20s, low 30s in Game 2. And he got pulled in that disastrous third quarter, though the disaster had already started, to be clear, by the time that he he came out. And then they ended up in this weird lineup where Pascal Siakam was at, he was their biggest guy, but he was guarding LeBron because he was the best remaining player to guard him. So they had CJ Miles and DeMar DeRozan on switches on Kevin Love. And I'm just sitting there going, what is your path to success? I've used the phrase, the theory of the lineup. Like, it was so weird to see Toronto the best team in the Eastern Conference during the regular season just put out these combinations of players that were not going to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. The bottom line is that series ended in the last five minutes of regulation of Game 1. The, the Raptors had to win that game going into that game uh, because of the amount of trouble they've had with Cleveland over the years. And they especially had to win that game with the way it played out and and where they sat with four minutes to go. I mean, they, they had to win that game and to miss their final 11 shots of regulation, to miss their final 16 of 18, including overtime. I mean, I think people were missing the point after game two and saying, oh, well, look how well the Raptors played on offense. They moved the ball. This isn't the same Raptors team. You know, like our friend Kevin Pelton was, you know, tweeting, uh, you know, if you don't come at me with this is the same old Raptors when they're playing like this. But the, the difference is this is the same old Raptors, and it's not – it's not because of what they were doing on the court in terms of style of play. It was the complete mental collapse of the team that that has happened. That's happened against Cleveland each of the last two years. And it's what happened in game two, not only from the standpoint, like you said, of them rolling out lineups that didn't really weren't coherent at that point because things were just falling apart and they fell apart in every way. They also look like they quit. I mean, they look like they gave up in that game. And look, LeBron hit a bunch of insane shots that looked like he was taunting Toronto as he was doing it because he just was like, ah, you know what? I just took a, a you know an 80 out of 100 grade difficulty shot. Now I'm going to take an 85 out of 100 grade difficulty shot. Now I'm going to take a 90 out of 100 grade difficulty shot and was making all of them. And I could see a team just kind of shrugging its shoulders and be like, well, what are we going to do? But if you 
spent the last year specifically building everything you did towards not collapsing against Cleveland in the playoffs to completely collapse in the second half of a winnable game uh, in the playoffs against Cleveland, it just you know completely blew up all the stuff that they did. So, yeah, I mean, the Raptors shot the ball from three. They moved the ball better. They did all the stuff that they've spent all this time doing, but it didn't fix the mental part. And the bottom line is they just completely fell apart from a mental standpoint, coaching-wise, playing-wise. And that, to me, you know, is what cost them that game yesterday. But it really cost them at the end of game one because they, they fell apart at the end of that game. And I, I just thought after they lost that when the series was over. I mean, I remember I think you guys on, on the Dunk Time pod, you know, weren't quite ready to say that it was over. But, I mean, I think everybody felt that way, that, like, for a team that's had as many issues with Cleveland as they had and has had as many confidence issues as they had, they needed to win that game. And the way it broke out and the way they fell apart, I think it just left them in a place where, you know, it, it, it was hard to see how they were going to come back from that anyway. And, and now, honestly, it's hard for me to see how they're going to win a game given the amount of horror stories they've had out of Cle- playing in Cleveland last year. So them to go down there and win even one game, let alone two, to make this a series again, just seems like you know something that I'm not even sure they're going to be capable of doing. What I think is an important element to look at, and for those who watch the Twitter NBA show, you can, you'll hear me say this a lot, you could develop some sort of entertainment around it, but <laughs> the idea of the quality of shot, and I think what was the biggest problem for the Raptors in the early part of that game, and it exacerbated to the nth degree before LeBron started mid-range of Palooza was even though Toronto was scoring well, Cleveland was getting better shots. And Cleveland has players who are capable of converting those looks. And I think that was the other underappreciated part of what happened in the Pacers series was so many of the support players just weren't hitting shots. You know, Corver had a they couple of rough nights. Jeff Green was bad. I think Jeff Green is playing over his head right now, but, you know, didn't have that. JR had a couple of rough nights. And Outside of Kyle Korver hitting, a, I mean, Kyle Korver probably saved their season in a lot of ways yeah. in games four and five of that series. He hit he hit a couple of huge shots late in game five, and he hit a couple of huge shots, I think, in the third quarter of game four. I might have those back mixed up. But in those two games, he had a bunch of shots. Otherwise, nobody really did anything. I mean, Kevin Love was invisible, basically, until last night. Or I guess, depending on when this comes out, Thursday night. Yeah, I mean, that that was an underrated thing. Like, you kept watching that series, and you waited for JR and, and Kevin Love and Corver and you know, these are the guys George Hill didn't play. You know, Tristan Thompson was in mothball, still basically game six. All this different stuff that went on. And now the Cavs look like the Cavs again. And the Raptors, you know, despite some of the stylistic changes they made, they look like the Raptors again. Right. And Corver was absolutely Cleveland's second best player in the first round series. And we don't know if Kevin Love is going to, you know, if he's back or anything like that. I, I think of, for now, game two as being more of a pleasant surprise than an aberration rather than that because it doesn't seem like his thumb is any better. You know, he yeah, just was able to make Cleveland shots. Will, Cleveland will take somewhere between game one and game two. Sure. They'll be quite happy with that. They just need him to be a threat and not a complete zero. Right. And and Cleveland has enough of those kind of roll the dice players that it'll work out because they're open shot hitters. And that's the theory around LeBron James. And the other player that I think has become very important to them, and I'm thrilled for it because I w- I've been a big fan of his for such a long time, is George Hill. George Hill is kind of fitting the role that they've wanted a lot of different players over the years next to LeBron of somebody who can 
create off the dribble, especially that screen and roll that he was running with Kevin Love in Game 7 of the Indiana series, but doesn't have to have the ball in his hands all the time. And I think that was a part of, I mean, beyond all the health issues with Isaiah, a part of why that didn't necessarily work is that you need a player who is capable of filling both of those roles, and I would say ideally somebody who's actually more comfortable off-ball than on-ball, and there aren't that many point guards that describe that fit that description. Yeah, I mean, look, the issue with George has never been his ability to be an impact player for them, right? It's his ability to actually stay on the court. And I don't think it's a coincidence that him being out for a large chunk of that series and not being right against Indiana, you know, was part of why the Cavs look like such a mess because they didn't have anybody else who could put them on the floor and do anything. George can stay healthy. He gives them, you know, a stretch option and a a defensive option and even a ball handling option that they don't have otherwise. And, you know, you're right. I think, you know, him being healthy going forward will be key to them, not only making, you know, this series go away quickly, but also, you know, assuming whoever they play in the conference finals would help against them and especially when they play in the finals. I mean, they're going to need somebody else besides LeBron to be able to do anything with the ball. And if George is able to, to give them minutes, he gives them another defensive option to put on somebody like Clay. I mean, or on staff. I mean, he, he does give them the kind of versatility that they don't really have for many other players on the roster in terms of being a two-way guy that can you know be effective at both ends. So I agree with you that the Cleveland-Toronto series is more of an it's a when series, not an if series. So that means I feel like Cleveland's going to win. And we just don't know whether it'll be four games, five games, or I guess technically six games is possible. I, I wouldn't expect it at all. And the what's other- your what? What would you? What are you? What do you? What? How? How many do you think it goes now? Four. I, mean, I, I yeah. I, I I'll be I'll be very surprised if it goes longer than four. Now look, maybe the Cavs play horribly in a game. Maybe LeBron, you know, has some kind of injury issue. Whatever. Well, yeah, and, but I, and I, Nate brought up the point that last year when the Cavs played the Celtics and demoralized them in the first two games as the as the road team, they ended up right. losing game three, even though everybody knew they were going to win the series. And so it could be a parallel to that or even a gentleman sweep where they just take their foot off the gas pedal a little bit. and, and Toronto, like the Spurs-Warriors series. Right. It could be a circumstance like that. So I could see it going five. I could even just see then Toronto going. But the series is, you know, it's exceedingly unlikely. Like, even if you want to say it goes six games, Cleveland's chances of winning the series are incredibly high. The other series that I think is like that, though not nearly as clearly because of the home road differentiation, is Warriors-Pelicans. And now that Steph Curry is back, a lot of the questions around the Warriors and, you know, where where it was going to go are answered. And we still do not, I mean, from one game, I do not feel comfortable saying, oh, Steph Curry is back physically or anything like that, though he was, to me, moving better than in the 2016 playoffs after he came back from that MCL sprain. But... Just having him in the rotation and thus having no Nick Young in the rotation and the way the Warriors have approached this series defensively, I just don't think there are many counters that the Pelicans have left, though they can certainly play better than they did in games one and two. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, I I think I thought coming into the series, I know we talked about it, uh, I think off offline at some point, either at a game or, or a text or whatever, but uh, I thought that this was a really bad matchup for the Pelicans uh, going up against Golden State because, you know, if you go back to that first round series against Portland, the Pelicans were able to isolate Lillard and McCollum and shut them down to some degree with uh, Drew Holiday, who has been fantastic in these playoffs. And Portland didn't have anybody else who could do anything, right? They didn't have anybody who could guard Davis. They didn't have a great option for Nikola Mirotic. They had some, but they weren't great. And they didn't have anybody who could guard Drew because the thing about Portland's guards is they're not defensive players. So, you know, Drew could really get going offensively and still be able to, you know, negate them defensively. So, you know, within their scheme, it made a lot of sense. 
But you look at this Warriors series, and for the Pelicans to keep up with Golden State, for one thing, the Pelicans like to play fast. Playing fast against Golden State is always a bad idea. So that's that's one thing. And in order for them to win, they need big games from Drew Holiday, big games from Nikola Mirotic, big games from Anthony Davis, right? Well, if you have Andre Iguodala to just put on Nikola Mirotic, you know, Mirotic played pretty well in Game 2, but you know he was terrible in Game 1, and, and you're going to be able to shut him down to more of a degree than most teams can because you have a guy like Iguodala you can just throw at him. You have Clay Thompson you can put, or Kevin Durant, who can go on Drew Holiday and make his life really difficult. And now Drew is incredible in Game 2. I mean, he played 46 and a half minutes and was insane, but asking him to do that over and over again, uh, even with a couple days between games, is tough. And the Warriors also even have a guy in Jamon Green who you can put on Davis, and not that you know, nobody's really going to stop Anthony Davis, but he can at least give him as much trouble as anybody in the league. So you, you look at it from that standpoint, and then you flip it back around, and the Warriors now have stepped back. They have nobody to guard Kevin Durant. They have nobody, you know, they can have Drew on clay, and that kind of cancels each other out. But then you have Rondo or, or somebody else guarding Steph, and that's not going to work out great. So I, I just think that it's it's a bad matchup from New Orleans' side. And I you know, I think if, if New Orleans was playing Houston, I, I think it could have been a more interesting series because of the, the matchups they have. But I, I just thought for as well as they played this year, it's just not it's not a favorable stylistic matchup to me. And I, I think that's why, you know, as long as the Warriors take care of business here, I, I think it's more likely than not that this one ends in four. You know, maybe, like you said, maybe it gets to five and New Orleans either wins tonight or, or Sunday. I wouldn't be shocked by that, but I, I just think it's a really tough matchup for them to get what they want to do against a team that kind of does what they do just better. The linchpin of the New Orleans difference between these two series to me is the small forward position because yep. Portland just didn't have any player that was in that series that could really threaten Evan Turner them. versus Kevin Durant, right? Yeah. Like, that's it. Yeah, Evan it is. Turner versus Kevin Durant. And Evan Turner doesn't provide much surplus value when playing with Lillard and CJ because he likes the ball in his hands. He doesn't shoot a ton of threes and he can do other things well, but he just doesn't fit in that spot. And you know, once, once Harkless came back and Harkless did have a couple of good performances, incidentally, Harkless's best game in that series was a game was when he came off the bench. I think that was game two. And yes. And so you have that difference. Also, Drew Holiday just had a more logical place to be. And while Drew Holiday, I think, can do a pretty solid job on, on Steph Curry, if that's where they decide to go now that Curry is in the starting lineup, they don't have anybody for Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant is such a talented yep. player that you have to game plan for it. And I thought Mirtich did a pretty good job on him in game one. But it's kind of like plugging that, that old cartoon thing of like there are holes in a ship. And you have to, you know, they start plugging them up like with their hands and their feet, and there are just too many holes. I think that's pretty much what New Orleans has to deal with defensively against the Warriors. And it's not even as much about, oh, starting Draymond at the five means they have so much spacing. It's not even so much about that. It's just that they have a lot of players that can beat inferior matchups one on one, and then they have so much ball movement and so much player movement. But the bigger story to me, because it affects a theoretical Western Conference Finals against the Rockets, is the aggressiveness and the execution that the Warriors have had on the defensive end. Yep, yep. No, I, I agree. I think, no, look, I think the one one thing that hasn't really been talked about enough, in my opinion, in these playoffs, and partly it's uh, partly it's because of the drama around when is Steph coming back, partly it's because that, that Spurs series just got awful, you know, from an entertainment standpoint. I mean, I, I think you guys, did you guys skip two games in that series, I think, for, for doing the, the show? Like, just wasn't it just wasn't compelling um because of the the you just nobody knew everybody knew how it was going to play out and it played out virtually exactly like everyone expected it to but i, I think that it, it it is very notable to me and I, I know you guys have talked about this on the, the pod a lot 
is that Steve Kerr has not messed around with lineups. And I think after 82 games of, you know, as somebody who has been around Golden State a lot, they did not care really at all this season. And they were in cruise control to the playoffs. They were going to, I think, ramp it up over the last six weeks of the season. Then everybody got hurt. So coming into the playoffs after, you know, kind of a rudimentary regular season that saw them win 58 games, which is still kind of amazing to even say, I thought it was really notable that Steve Kerr went to Andrew Goodall over Quinn Cook right away against the Spurs, and he went to the small lineup right away in the second round against the Pelicans. And I think, you know, unlike the past when Steve has kind of said, all right, you know, we're going to start a regular lineup, and we're not going to adjust, and we're going to, we're only going to change things up if we have to. I think by him saying, listen, fellas, we are not messing around here. We are playing our best lineup, and we're going to roll with this, and this is what we're going to do. I think it has allowed the Warriors to get into the right frame of mind right off the bat. And really, other than game four of the Spurs series, when, you know, I think that was a weird weekend for a variety of reasons. You had the Popovich stuff going on. You had the weird stuff with the the jacket thing with the the local announcer. I mean, there was just a lot of weird stuff going on. They'd won 3-0. I think they just kind of took their foot off the gas for a minute. You know, no Kawhi, obviously. I mean, it was just strange. It was a strange weekend in San Antonio. But Outside of that game, I think you've seen Golden State to your point, like you said, about the defensive intensity. They've been locked in, I think, just about every minute of the other games. And I think that, you know, if they play like that to that level, and they have Draymond Green, who's been their best player, I think, so far in these playoffs, locked in like he's been, I don't think there's anybody in the league still that really comes all that close to them. And, and I think that's why you've seen them roll through, you know, these first seven games. And, you know, like uh, I'm in Salt Lake City for this game tonight, and I think that they've looked far more impressive than, say, the Rockets have, who, in my opinion, had a couple of good quarters and largely, other than that, been okay, but nothing special. Golden State has looked to me like every bit the favorite that people thought they were back in August. And the reason why is, to your point, because they are locked in with a defensive intensity that they just rarely have ever showed at any point through the first 82 games of the season. The two key elements for the Warriors defensively are personnel, I think you talked about that really well, and approach. And the approach has been really impressive to me on Anthony Davis, and what I mean by that is they have said... Anthony Davis is the tactical imperative for us when New Orleans has the ball. We will make every shot for him challenging. They were, they're using a lot of times, I think Looney's done a pretty good job one-on-one, but also Looney does a nice job of kind of keeping Davis at bay until help comes, bringing help from different places, trying to do it intelligently. And then the other big tactical thing, which will play out in every series the Warriors play in as far as this goes, is using Draymond Green on on Rondo. And yes, in game two, Rajon Rondo made three out of four threes. He's going to have to make a lot more than that in order to change the dynamic that is created by having the Warriors effectively defending five on four, because then they can bring help from lots of places. They can cut off the angles. And it's not always about forcing turnovers. It can be about making every shot other than Rondo threes a difficult one. And generally speaking, if the Warriors execute to that point, now that they have Steph Curry back, that team is not going to be able to outscore the Warriors. Yeah, I know. You're right. I mean, I thought, you know, Draymond's answer on that was uh, was pretty telling, right? When when somebody asked him, I don't remember who it was, somebody asked him after game, I think after game two, you know, Rondo hit a couple shots, are you going to guard him now? And he essentially said, listen, I'm quite happy for Anthony Davis to have two people on him and have Rondo left alone, right? And I'd rather not let Anthony Davis go going and take my chances with 
Rajon Rondo get going? And I, I thought going into the series, I kind of, I, you know, I thought that, like I said, I thought they're going to put Iguodala on on Miritich, and I thought that that would likely lead to a scenario where you would have Draymond uh, on Rondo a lot. And I think it makes a lot of sense because, to your point, you just leave him alone. And look, if he's going to go eight for ten from three, fine. But he's a not going to shoot ten times, and b if he shoots three or four times, okay. If he makes three, that's great. But you, their their offense is still going to be stunted because their spacing is not going to be good and the floor is going to be uneven and all that stuff. And, you know, that's just smart, sound defensive strategy. And when the Warriors are playing soundly defensively and they're playing with effort and intensity, you know, like I said, for as good as New Orleans is, they're just trying to do stuff at a level that they can't keep up with Golden State on. And that's that's just, I think, too much for them to ask. One other quick point I wanted to bring up is that I've heard some talk from various people about how New Orleans really misses DeMarcus Cousins in this series. And I do think that DeMarcus Cousins makes the Pelicans a better team overall, especially if he was used properly. But in this series particularly, the weakness that DeMarcus Cousins has is that he is not a consistent defender in terms of effort or execution. And the Warriors would have absolutely hunted him out in those capacities, especially if they were willing to go with something like Draymond and Center. So what Cousins would have done is he would have created new advantages offensively just because he is so powerful on that end that he warrants attention. And the Warriors could not do their approach on Anthony Davis if DeMarcus Cousins were there. However, he would make it so much harder for them to defend the Warriors competently. And so, there, you know, that, that balance could have tilted one way or the other, but I don't think that it fundamentally, like, transforms the dynamic of this series. No, I mean, I think I think where Cousins would make things interesting is, like you said, he could he could potentially force the Warriors to play differently, right? Where if you have Cousins and Davis out there, can you play small all the time? Or do you have to go to Zaza Pachulia or JaVale McGee or, you know, Kevon Looney's played great, I think, in these first couple of games. But, are you know, can, is, if, if Kevon Looney's guarding DeMarcus Cousins, is he just getting bowled over, right? Like, it, I, the series would be different than you could get Miritich out there in more advantageous matchups. You, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things they could do if they had a healthy Cousins out there. But, you know, it all, like you said, it also could lead to the Warriors just feasting at the other end if you have... Rondo kind of hunting for seals and you have DeMarcus, you know, not paying attention. And you know, I mean, it just, it, it, it would, it would change the, the paradigm a lot in the series. It would, I think it would make it stylistically a little more interesting, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still talking about, you know, Golden State, you know, it comes back to why I've had them in the finals from the beginning is you have four of the best 15 or 17 or 20 players, whatever you want to rank them. I mean, they're, there's no team in the league that has four players like they do. And in a league where talent pretty much always trumps everything else, it's just hard for me to see how, you know, any any shift like that, while it would make the series a little more compelling from a style standpoint and maybe even from a competitive standpoint, I don't think it would greatly change the eventual outcome of it. One other quick point on this series before we move on. We have seen this kind of long-term thing with LeBron as well, but Andre Guadalla and Draymond Green, you know, there were questions during the regular season for both of those guys. I mean, Draymond was not nearly as good this year in the regular season, especially defensively, didn't play with that kind of force, also was dealing with a shoulder issue for a lot of the year. And then now, you know, they're they're out of chill mode, and both those guys are playing great. And so, it, again, it takes away one of the question marks and there are still ways to attack Iguodala's limitations offensively, you know, kind of letting him shoot in the way that I think the Warriors are going to do with P.J. Tucker, should that series happen. But 
he has, you know, he has stepped up. And there was this question that I'd been dealing with and writing about for The Athletic about what if Iguodala isn't the guy? Like, what if he just doesn't have that element anymore? And at least for this year, it seems like he still does. You could love Draymond Green in there too, right? I mean, sure. I think they're, I mean, I know you guys have talked about that. And I think all of us have been around this Warriors team have, right? Like, that, that was kind of a question all year. Were Draymond and Andre kind of, I'm not sandbagging it, but were they were they playing it 75% like everybody else? And were they going to be able to ramp it up? Or, you know, because of the way they play, had their game started to slip a little bit? Or in Andre's case, maybe a lot. And I, I think at least through the first seven games of these playoffs, I think you can say that that has not been the case. I mean, look, Andre, I thought, was pretty bad through basically all of the playoffs last year until the finals, uh, until really the last game of the finals. And I think he's been better. I don't know. I'd be curious to get your opinion. I think he's been far better through these seven games than he was really for pretty much the majority of the playoffs last year. And, you know, when you have Draymond and Iguodala playing like this and importantly hitting shots, I mean, the number that I've had in mind with the Warriors this whole time is when they get in the playoffs is 35%. And it's 35% from three for Iguodala and Green together. And if, if, if they shoot 35 or better from three, I think the Warriors are going to win every single game that that, that happens. Uh, the one game they've lost in the playoffs, those guys, I believe, combined one for eight in game four of the Spurs series. I think every other game, they've been at least 30% uh, and often, you know, 35 or higher. And I, I think that, to me, that is the thing. Like, if they're playing hard defensively and they're making enough shots, you have to kind of pay attention to them offensively. Uh, I think the Warriors at that point are, are pretty much unbeatable. I mean, it's pretty close to it, considering what they get from everybody else. And the fact that they can allow those players to do to do what they do without needing more from them offensively is a part of why the Warriors are so dangerous. Because, you know, there is this idea of if Draymond were on another team, he would still be awesome defensively and he would still be productive offensively. But the Warriors put him, just like all these guys, Clay Thompson, I think, you know, they're in an optimal role, not necessarily for usage, but for effectiveness and efficiency on both ends of the floor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the thing about the Warriors. Like, they, they can play, they could play against virtually anybody with any style. I mean, that, that's what ha- I mean, they, they, they built a team full of long, versatile, athletic guys, right? That allow them to go up against anybody and kind of handle anything. Now that, you know, if they, if they, if there's a situation where like Philly got really good next year, say, um, or even in this year's finals, if they somehow get there and, uh, you've got a Joel Embiid out there or you have Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins, like, yeah, maybe then they'd have some trouble with a team that could really bang them inside and beat them up. I think Kevin Pelton did a thing earlier this year looking at Cousins and Davis and thinking like, if you really pound the offensive glass, maybe that. That's a way you could really kind of take it to this Warriors team in a way teams haven't been able to so far. But there are so few teams with those kind of options right now that it puts Golden State in a position where, you know, anybody that's trying to play any kind of spread game or small and fast game, they just have better players doing it. And it, it requires, you know, a lot of things to go wrong for them to not win those games. Lots more to talk about with Tim Bontemps, but I want to take a moment to tell you about our friends at BetDSI. May is a fantastic sports month. You have... NBA and NHL playoff games almost every day. And then you also have baseball's regular season for those that are interested in it and a lot of other special events like the Kentucky Derby. And BetDSI is a great way to engage with that, to test out your own skills. And there are lots of options there, but BetDSI is my preferred one because they have fast, easy payment and winnings, which is such an important part in this field. Great customer service. They've been in business for more than 20 years. And so what you can do is you go to betdsi.com and then you use the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, should be familiar with that because this is Real GM Radio, and you can get up to $2,500 free on your first deposit. 
and there are hundreds of wagering options on the various events. I didn't mention UFC. That's another one that people can be really interested in. And of course, if you're listening to this, you're into basketball. Basketball is a great thing to check it out there. So you can go to, again, betdsi.com. Then you use the promo code REALGM for that awesome promo of up to 2500 bucks free on your first deposit. Betdsi.com. Go there now. Start winning today. We can transition, I, I think it's a good point about the offensive rebounding, to a team that is capable of that offensive rebounding and is putting up a good fight. We're recording this before Game 3 of Rockets-Jazz, but I think I have been super impressed with Utah's a- approach in this series and the fact that they've been willing to change over the things that didn't work. And the most important element that Utah added or two, actually, in game two. One was the quick slips that were confusing Houston's switching system, and that allowed Utah to build the score buffer that they needed to eventually pull out the win. But then the second part was, you know, in the second half, especially with Alec Burks, and this was true in the second quarter, I believe, as well, they just started attacking earlier, and it it worked out very well. And the playoffs are about star talent, and we talked about that in the Cleveland-Toronto series and everything else. But it's also about making the adjustments necessary to give your team the best chance to win. That does not guarantee a win in any shape or form, but maximizing that. And I think that's true of the the two series that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, no, I I agree completely. I mean, I'm fascinated. I I think this is probably going to come out of game three, but I'm really fascinated to go to this Jazz game tonight. I think think Houston could be in trouble in this series. Quinn Snyder has just done a remarkable job. And you saw in game two, uh, to your point, with the switching that Houston likes to do, they basically said, look, our ball movement stuff is not really going to work. So what we need to do is get downhill and attack and and try to you know create openings to get people over the top for, for alley-oops and kick out for open shots. And I think you saw right from the beginning of that game, you know, Houston, A, didn't have the defensive intensity they needed, which I think you guys talked about in your recap of it, and B, just getting off to that kind of a start and, and establishing that, that rhythm and getting everybody involved and getting those quick over-the-top dunks, I think it just kind of threw the Rockets off, and it took them a long time to get their equilibrium back, and by the time they did, they were down 20, and they had to claw their way back and end up losing, but um, look, I, I, the crowd is going to be just completely fired up here tonight. They're doing the, the red jersey or whatever they are, the, the city jersey thing with the court. I mean, it's going to be a really cool atmosphere in there. And, you know, this Jazz team is well-disciplined. They're well-coached. They do what they, they execute. The game plans are put in front of them. And, you know, part of the beauty of Houston, which is, you know, part of why I'm a huge Mike D'Antoni fan, is he kind of says, look, here's what we're going to do. Like, go ahead and stop it, right? Like, there's not a lot of adjusting for them to do. They kind of do their thing, and you either stop it or you don't. And I, I thought Quinn's adjustments in Game 2 were really sound and really smart. And it, to me, is going to be very interesting to see what they come out with as wrinkles in Game 3 because they, you know, they if they can get this win tonight, you know, Danny, the next 48 hours are going to be all about, here we go again, kind of just like the Raptors, right? Here we go again with the Rockets. Here we go again with Chris Ball. Here we go again with James Harden. Here we go again with Mike D'Antoni. Is this team going to fall apart in the playoffs, or are they going to get their act together and, and you know, win this series and set up this conference finals? And, you know, that that could be a real inflection point for this franchise. And I that, that to me, is what makes this game really, really interesting. You know, I think Nate said on the pod his favorite game is Game 6 when the, the, the underdog is up 3-2. I probably agree with him on that, but my other really maybe favorite game is 1-1 coming to the home team's arena. Because if you lose this game and you go down 2-1, then the pressure really shifts 
to the to the home to the road team, and it really becomes a series. If Houston can win today, you know, I think they got they would then have a decent chance of winning again on Sunday, and you know they go home three one and they take care of business. But if they lose tonight, all the pressure is going to shift to them. If it isn't on them already, since nobody, you know, most people didn't really give Utah a chance in this series, I think it's going to be a really fascinating atmosphere tonight, and I can't wait to see you know how this game plays out and uh, and what the adjustments are. I agree with you that Houston does not have a ton of adjustments they can make offensively because of personnel, but the biggest thing they need to do defensively is actually not an adjustment in terms of tactics, it's an adjustment in terms of communication. I thought a lot of the mistakes they made were just yep. figuring out how they wanted to handle that. And I, I do think that having have a couple days and that being the most important thing, especially considering how much Houston improved on it over the course of Game 2, that that bodes well for them. Yep. But Utah forces opponents to execute consistently. And what makes them different, Matt Moore has used the term, and I, and I really like this. He's used this the best. I think the most effective was last year on the Celtics, which is different than this year. We'll talk about that. Of the idea of tryhards. And so there are these teams that's like, oh, oftentimes they're well coached and they work and they make the most of their talent. And so it's just basically they'll get bowled over by a good team. What makes Utah different than those quote unquote tryhards is that they have a lot of talent. And Donovan Mitchell has been electrifying a lot of times with the ball in his hands, one time flat-footed going for a tip dunk. And Rudy Gobert is an absolute monster defensively. And then everything else fits in with that. So they have this high-end talent. Maybe it's not, you know, MVP talent, but it's awfully, awfully good. I mean, Rudy Gobert is an all-NBA player right now, and Donovan Mitchell could be there in the near future. And Utah's system is built around maximizing the extreme strengths of Gobert in a way that a lot of those tryhard teams do not. Yes. I mean, that that's why, I mean, look, you you know, Boston and, and, and Utah are similar in that they, they are teams with talent, despite what people think. Uh, you know, and I, listen, I've, I've, you know, shortchanged the, the Celtics a bunch of times in these playoffs because I, I don't think they had as much talent necessarily as, as Milwaukee. And I certainly don't think they have as much as Philly right now, given the amount of injuries they have. But, you know, the thing about those teams, to your point, is that they, they put the guys they have in positions to succeed. And, you know, I was talking to Rudy a little bit yesterday just about their team. And he was like, look, you know, coming into the season, I thought we were going to be pretty good because we knew we were going to be really good on defense. And, and he was right and that their foundation was always being able to stop the other team. And that's still the case now. I mean, I was... I was so impressed by Gobert, you know, in the in particularly one sequence late in you know early in the fourth quarter, right before Clint Capella came back in. He deterred Chris Paul from getting a layup. Then he was back out the three point line, present prevent someone from getting a three. Then he was going back in the lane to make it to stop another play. I mean, his ability to cover ground and and get and disrupt things all over the court at his size is really remarkable. And it it does allow them to you know have a kind of a baseline understanding, like all right, we're going to be able to hold this team to a certain percentage. So now if we can if we can get to a certain number offensively, we're going to have a chance to beat anybody. And, you know, that to me is what does make this so fascinating is it puts them in a position to, I think, really have a chance to beat this Rockets team and, you know, make this, you know, uh, an awfully compelling weekend here in Salt Lake City if they can get this game and, like I said, leave 48 hours of time for the pressure to just ratchet up, ratchet up on the uh, on the on the Rockets that, you know, they better win this game four or they're in huge trouble. It also serves as a good reminder of something that Jazz fans said a lot last year, and I 
I, I don't know. I, I understood what they were saying, but I was a little bit more ambivalent on it as they were definitive. That Gobert's hyperextension in that Clipper series was affecting him against the Warriors because he was not able to cover ground and defend on switches as well in that series as he has so far in this Rockets one. And while Gobert dealt with issues, he looks to be pretty dang close to 100% right now. Yeah, and listen, I'm with you. I mean, was Gobert 100% last year? Of course not. And he definitely was limited in that series, right? However, that series is going to be a sweep no matter what. Like, I think that's the difference, is that Golden State was just vastly superior to not only the Jazz, but everybody last year. And I don't think a healthy, maybe the Jazz win one game if Rudy is 100%, maybe. But to your point, I, I don't think that the Jazz in that series make things that compelling last year, right? I mean, I just don't, I just don't see that. I mean, George Hill was not 100%. I mean, even still, I mean, I just think you look at the development they've had across the roster this year with the way Ricky Rubio's improved this year, the way Mitchell's obviously blown up, the way Joe Ingles has gotten better, Derek Favors is healthy, Gobert has got, I mean, they're, they've had so much. They got Crowder who helps. I mean, they, they've just done a great job of internal improvement. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't think that impacted a lot of things last year, but I do think you're seeing this year when he is healthy, despite his size, he is capable of getting around the court in a way that I think a lot of people were unsure of before these playoffs, and you know, it's only really cemented the fact that he is, you know, in my opinion, the league's best defensive player right now. Yeah, and it's different than Draymond. Well, of course, we didn't see this Draymond at all in the regular season, so defensive player right. here, I, I have that going to Gobert. But yeah, I mean, the way that Gobert fits in with what they're doing, and also the Jazz have done a nice job, something that I don't think the Sixers have gotten all the way to yet, and they'll get there in time, of how you kind of approach the idea of dribble penetration and conceding gaps when you have an elite rim-protecting center. And so you still don't want to let guys by. You know, you don't want to sabotage them, especially because foul trouble can be such a big deal. But Utah does a good job of mitigating that without sacrificing their defensive integrity. And they could, that can be a model for so many teams that they don't have a, a center as gifted as Gobert because there aren't many centers, if any, in the league as gifted as Gobert is defensively. But the overall kind of ethos of Utah's defense, I think, can be replicated to a point. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, those guys, you know, him and Embiid both are, are special talents, and it, they're imposing in different ways, right? Because Embiid is just, like, Rudy is huge. Standing next to Rudy, he is a gigantic guy, right? But Embiid, I think also in part because of the trash talking that he does, like, Embiid is just a gigantic presence and I, I think both of those guys you know they they in, in different ways but with similar impact they really just completely thwart teams for getting to the rim I know Embiid was doing that last night he did that his entrance in the Miami series completely changed the Miami series I mean they they just stopped even remotely going near the rim and yeah I think in time you know you know let's say they take the JJ Redick spot and put a better defensive player there you know, they have Robert Covington, you know, continue to take steps forward. Ben Simmons takes steps forward. You know, Darius Sarge get better. I mean, they, you know, the Jazz are kind of on a string at this point with the guys they have there. And I think that, I think to your point, you know, ben, Brett Brown's a great coach too. And I think in time, you know, Philly's already got a really good defense. And I, I, I do think that they're going to get there in time to, to better take advantage of, of, you know, Embiid's immense size in the paint and his ability to, you know, really deter people from even wanting to shoot inside. I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Hims, a new wellness brand for men. And what I love about Hims is that they are taking a problem that so many men deal with and addressing it in a straightforward way. And for me, what catalyzed this idea is the is that when 
you start to notice hair loss, it's already too late. It is far better to retain the hair that you already have rather than replace the hair that you've lost. And so that's why being proactive, something I talk about a lot on Real Gym Radio and everything else, that applies to basketball. It also applies to taking care of your body, taking care of your hair. And two-thirds of men begin to lose their hair by age 35. So being proactive really helps. And that's where Hims comes in. It is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Their website is forhims.com, F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com, and it connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. And these are well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No waiting rooms. You can do it quickly and easily at forhims.com. And even better, if you go to forhims.com slash real, it's a custom URL in this one, R-E-A-L, you can get a trial month of Hims for just $5 while supplies last. And you can check out their website for full details. It will cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. So again, that custom URL, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real, R-E-A-L. And you can get that trial month of Hims for just $5 today. Hims, a new wellness brand for men. Let's talk about the Celtics Sixers series. And I, I've been very impressed with the Celtics. I deliberately started Thursday night slash Friday mornings, dunked on section on that game with praise for Boston, the way they fought back from the deficit, the 21 points in the second quarter was really, really impressive. And I do not want to take anything away from them. And I, and I won't. Philly in that game, and generally speaking, their their biggest weakness kind of as a as an organization, I think Brett Brown deserves a ton of credit for the way he has built this team around the strengths of his best players, which are unusual strengths. But they just don't, against good teams, great teams, they, they don't have enough kind of that foundation. You, know, you talked about that with, with the Jazz. They don't have that really foundation on either end of the floor yet because they haven't fully cr- catalyzed their identity. Yeah, they just haven't played enough games. I mean, Ben Simmons is a rookie, you know, at least in, in terms of playing. I mean, I know this is a great debate. Is Ben Simmons a rookie? But he's, he's a rookie in the playoffs, regardless of when he got in the league, right? Joel Embiid has played, what, 95 games or so as an NBA player? I mean, maybe it's a little more than that. He hasn't played 100 games. Played 31 last year. Played 60 in the regular season. He's played, what, five in the playoffs? I guess that's 96 games. I mean, he's played 96 ever games. Ben Simmons has played 90 games. It takes time to figure out what it takes in a playoff series and and it, to adjust to what opponents are doing. And, you know, Robert Covington's never played in the playoffs. Darius Sarge has never played in the playoffs. I mean, that's the thing that I think is a bit of a misnomer about you know, Donovan Mitchell's been unbelievable in these playoffs, and he deserves full credit. I can't believe the adjustments he's made and the, the way he's been able to play. But he is one guy who's been put into a system where you have, you know, a, a veteran. You have veterans all around him. Even though some of them have been in the playoffs before, you have Joe Engels, you have R- Ricky Rubio, you have Derek Favors, you have uh, Jake Crowder, you have Rudy Gobert. You have, you know, you have a system and a structure for how that team wants to play, and they have an identity that they stick to. And to your point, Philly is still figuring this all out on the fly. I mean, they've wildly exceeded their own expectations, everybody's expectations. And, you know, it's going to take time for them to learn what it takes to adjust in a playoff series and to figure this stuff out. And that that's what they're figuring out now. Now, I'm curious, I, I would like to ask you, what what was your take on that that, that game last night, uh, I mean, on Thursday, when this comes out, for Ben Simmons? Because I, 
that was one of the more confusing performances I, I've seen in a long time. Not that Boston wasn't playing well defensively, but like it just didn't seem like Simmons was even trying to remotely be aggressive. And, you know, I remember one play in particular, he got the ball isolated on the left wing, like 10, 12 feet from the basket, maybe 15, with Aaron Baines on him. And he just stood there with the ball for, I want to say, seven, eight seconds. And he didn't look to do anything. And then he kind of lollipopped his pass way over the, to the other side of the court to Dario Sarge. By the time he caught it, it was a shot clock violation. And that, that kind of summed up the way his night went. I was just curious, you know, what, what was kind of your take on the way he played and, and what possibly led to him looking so completely out of it on both ends of the court? Aggressiveness is a great word to use as kind of the the focal point of this. And the base assignment being Al Horford presents some real problems for Simmons because the concept of just attacking the space doesn't work as well against a capable rim protector because he occupies that space. And then guess what? Al Horford is there. Al Horford is better than a lot of the other players that have guarded Simmons. He's also strong. And so Simmons can't there are a lot of guys that Simmons can't move very well on the Celtics, whereas normally because... And people lose sight of how big Ben Simmons is, partially because he plays next to Joel Embiid and partially because... Yeah, he's huge. Guys, he's 6'10", he's, he's 230. I mean, right. He is a huge guy. And partially because players like him don't have the ball in their hands that much. I mean, LeBron, everybody treats LeBron as a freak because we've been used to it and we understand that with LeBron. I mean, also, I think the way that he grew up in front of us, we can appreciate that in LeBron's background in football. And, and, LeBron, also plays, and LeBron also plays with a force that, sure. that Simmons doesn't play with like either, that's, too, that's right? That's in like, LeBron's identity. Like, that's a part of right. it. Simmons, Simmons is a little Simmons bit is, different. Yes, he's very, he's very, he's, he's incredibly smooth with the ball, which is a, a credit to him, but it, it is a different, like, LeBron, it's, it's always visible, right? Like, every time, like, he's, like, Simmons, like, kind of, LeBron goes zero to 60 and, like, it's like a muscle car where you hear the engine the whole time, whereas Simmons is, like, goes zero to 60 and it's just like a glide the whole time. It's like a Tesla, where you don't, you don't, you don't hear it, but he just speeds up and goes flying down the court. And I do think that plays into it too, where you don't, you don't recognize the size that way. I agree with that. And so where I'm going to turn the aggressiveness, you brought up the Aaron Baines possession. That is a good one is also in transition. I thought that Simmons did not do a good enough job of just getting into this idea, which young teams, you know, they have to get into the adjustment of how different the playoffs are. Indiana, you know, you could argue that a part of the reason they lost that series was because early on they weren't pushing it, pushing it enough is that you have to bring maximum effort as much of the time as you can. And a good coach will then know how to scale back a player's minutes to just ensure that you get the best whatever number and then you have somebody else to fill in the gaps. And for most players, that's not what LeBron James is where it's 44 minutes. It's going to be 36, 38, something in that range. But what the Sixers need is to play with force and they get a lot of that through transition and the other big mistake they did and this ties in with playing with force is maximum effort getting the hell back in transition because when they so they were making a lot of ridiculous shots in the first half of particularly the first quarter plus of game two but then when those shots stopped falling and the rebounds stopped going to them they didn't change back and they were just doing the same stuff and those were always unlikely strategies. You know, it was, they were gambles. They were gambles that paid off. It would be like if you went to the roulette wheel and you put all your money on one number and you won once or twice and you said, oh, well, that's just going to work every time now. The odds, right. the odds didn't change. The odds right. didn't change. It just paid out a couple of times. 
And so yep. what Brett Brown needs to instill in these players is if they have if you have two guys behind the break against any team that's competent, you're going to lose. They're going to score on that possession consistently. And Boston, despite having trouble, though they got a lot better in the second half against Philly's half-court defense, which is legit, and it's it's going to be a building block for what they do successfully moving forward, they have to make everything else work. And it, it parallels to me what was so frustrating about the Raptors in the Wizards series, where yes. they didn't play to their own strengths. They played to what they wanted to do and didn't realize, okay, we are better than our opponent. I, I've used the term before, this is a Gladwell thing, of David strategies. When yep. you are Goliath, don't use David strategies. There's a reason that they're David strategies, and that's play yep. to your play to your strengths, play to your advantage. And so if they force Boston to score in a half-court set almost every single time, two things are going to happen. First thing, Boston's not going to score very much. Second thing, if it combines with the aggressiveness I was talking about before, pushing, it will get Philly more defensive rebounds, maybe more turnovers, and then they can use that to create more reliable offense. And so go in that approach instead of like once every couple times you get a you get an offensive rebound because you can do better than that. Yeah, no question. I, I've 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 heard you use that phrase, the you know the the David David strategy thing, and I, I like it. I mean, I think. You mentioned it with the Toronto series. I mean, I think you can look. You know, it, it happens kind of time and again, right? When you see a when you see a favorite team lose, you know, like we went back before. Part of it is it's it's teams' weaknesses being exposed, and also part of it is, like you said, it's teams not doing enough to take advantage of what they're best at. You know, you could say the same thing in the last series with Boston, Milwaukee, right? Milwaukee, whenever Milwaukee got out and ran and got an open space for Giannis and Middleton and Bond and those guys to kind of use their athleticism and go up down the court, they look great. And, you know, they they did not do that enough in the games in Boston, and that was the difference in the series. And I think, to your point, you know, the Sixers kind of felt, you know, like they did at times against the Heat, they fell in love with some of the, the difficult shots they made. And instead of, you know, going, okay, this has been good, but we got to get back to the stuff we're really good at, they kind of just said, ah, this is going to work out great. And, you know, that's the that's the, the sign of a team that hasn't been in the playoffs before and and has to do some growing up. And, you know, this is the beginning of what should be a long run for them. And that's something they're going to have to learn. The question is, are they going to be able to learn it enough uh, and fast enough to win this series? Or is it something that they're going to look back on over the summer and say, man, I wish we could have, you know, done a little differently in that game, too, because we get that game and the series looks a heck of a lot different. And there's certainly a parallel to the way that I talked about these playoffs from Boston's perspective before they started. I said for Boston, it's not about how many games or how many series they win. It's about what lessons Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in particular, but Rozier, I think, has really shown up as well, what they take from this. Because the Celtics are yep. going to look dramatically different 12 months from now than they than they do now. That's just the way it works, you know, when you add in those players. And so... Boston has been able to, it seems like, though we won't know until early next season, maybe even after the All-Star break, where this part of it comes in with the story. And I think to a point, it's the same way for Philly, where they need to be thinking about the long game, because while you never know about health, and Joel Embiid in particular, for being a young player, that is that is certainly true, you know that this is going to a brighter place for Philly. And that does not mean they're getting necessarily Paul George or LeBron James in free agency or anything like that. It's just that they are incredibly young, and young teams get better. And I think a lot of their players have ways to improve. So if they can come away from these playoffs saying, okay, this is what it takes to succeed in the playoffs, and these are the things that we are not doing right now, and they make it their goal from the day they are eliminated 
until October 1st and then incorporating that throughout the season, they'll be better for it, even if they end up losing this series. Yeah, I agree. I think both these teams are in a position where losing the series is not going to be, it will be disappointing in the moment, but in the long term, it will not be, right? I mean, for both these teams to get to the second round of the playoffs, you know, for Boston, with all the injuries they've had with for the Sixers, given, I mean, the fact that they won, I think, what, 50 combined games the last three years, and now they've, you know, won 50 in a season and got to the second round. And I mean, that that's a huge step forward, right? And to your point, this is, this whole experience is going to give them things to build on. And, you know, you look at it, these should be the two best teams in the East probably for the next five years. And and, you know, we're probably going to see a lot more of these. You know, that's assuming, you know, LeBron either ages out or, or moves on or they don't get another star. But they're going to be two of the three best teams at minimum. And uh, we're probably going to see these matchups a lot more in the future. And I think for both these teams, like you said, how they learn from these playoffs and grow and adapt and the pieces they add to their teams to try to fill them out and, you know, decisions they make in trades and free agency. I mean, that that kind of stuff is going to really dictate a lot. And, and the lessons they learn over the next week or so here could have a profound impact on, you know, how these teams look and the paths they take going forward. So it's, you know, it's a pretty compelling series to see, you know, you don't often see two teams in this kind of situation meet in the playoffs, right? Like a lot of times it's the Lakers going up against the young Thunder, right? Or the the young Bulls going up against the Celtics at the beginning of the Derrick Rose run, right? Or you know, you can kind of the Warriors playing the Spurs in 2000, what was that, 2013, right? Like you, you kind of see the young upstart kind of make a little run and then they run into a team. Like if the if the, the Cavs had played one of these, say the Cavs had played the Sixers in the second round, right? And they kind of go, all right, you know, we lost to LeBron, but we're going to be back and we're going to be good. It's rare that you have the two young teams, you know, and the, the Celtics obviously have injuries, but to have the two teams with all this young talent really in this for the first time uh, in these kind of roles, going through it together at the same time against one another, it, it's a unique situation and, and one that uh, is going to be, you know, really interesting to see not only how these teams handle the next few days, but how they handle, like you said, the next few months, the next few years, because this is going to be the beginning of a long run that's going to shape probably the decisions they make going forward in terms of how they construct the roster and, and what they try to do. One more I want to throw in, those are some really good examples, were those early Jordan Bulls teams where they hadn't figured it out all the way ah, yet. Right. And yeah, they against ran, the Pistons, of course. Yeah, against the Pistons and against the, the Bird Celtics in 86. Like ah, the, right, yes, of course, yeah. The, those sorts of series. And so you could take things away from it. It's, you know, they have to get a whole lot better. Both these teams do, but they will. I fully expect them to. And so the last thing I wanted to talk with you one, about. One question, actually. Sure, go ahead. What, what, uh, just because I've been kind of kicking it around the last couple of days, which if you could pick a team long term to to have uh, between those two teams, if you could, whether it's take control of a team. I, yeah, I guess if you could if you could take control of a team of, of those two teams for the next however many years going forward, which, which do you prefer? at the moment, Boston and Philly? Yeah, it's it's a, a really good question, and what challenges me with it is a very important idea that I haven't gotten all the way to yet, which is basically Nate has done a great job of explaining that the, the Sixers have extreme strengths and extreme weaknesses, and so what I'm trying to figure out is whether the Sixers' extreme weaknesses are going to get resolved with time. And I'm not sure Simmons is ever going to have a great jump shot. He has the potential to. Not not a great jump shot. I think a serviceable one. He could get to that point. And MB. But you could, but Ben, but Ben Simmons also, to your point, I, I've thought this a lot this year. This could be as good as Ben Simmons ever is. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, to me, like he's max, he's already jumped up a lot of levels in terms of the stuff that people thought he needed to work on, right? His defense, you know, people thought that was going to be an issue. He's been great defensively. You know, he's already one of the best passers in the league. He's not like he's going to be a better passer, really. I mean, he can, he can look at some, he can learn some things, but you know, that, that's just one of those things he kind of has. And like, I, when I say it's the best he's going to be, like he could be, like this for 
15 years, right? Or 12 years. And like, that's a great player. But to your point, if that jump shot doesn't improve, I don't know if he can really take another step or if this is just kind of who he is. On the merits, I think you have a sound a sound argument. The counter to it for me is a guy like Giannis. And what I mean by that is when a player is this good, this young, and it seems like Simmons has worked to get to get better. I mean, the way that he has approached it. I right. my general assumption shifts, and this is why for players like Drummond, who never, who I mean, Drummond was really good at a young age and just never really progressed. He's been better this year, but just he didn't go through that progression. But a lot sure. of the guys do, and so I don't know where it's going to come from. And I think you're right that the mid range shot, in particular, of course, it'd be great if Ben Simmons had a three, could end up being a limiting factor for. A decade, you know, he could still be great, could still be all NBA player, all that. Yeah, and I, stuff. and I, and I, when I say that, what I, what I mean is like the difference. Like right now, I think we both agree he's on the fringe of all NBA conversations, right? Like that's about where he is, from somewhere in the I don't know, fifteen to thirty range, probably in the league. But for him to get, what I'm saying is like for him to get to the top five, like that kind of level, if he doesn't improve the jump shot, like even Giannis is kind of, he's, I wouldn't say he's a threat, but he's at least shooting from there, right? Like if this just remains where Simmons just doesn't shoot outside the paint, barring anything, I, I do wonder kind of if he can jump a lot higher than this, like, or if he can't really break into the top 10. I mean, I, it's it's just he's a fascinating player to me for that reason because I I just don't like he is so physically gifted and yet at the same time there is like you said like he's kind of emblematic of that whole team he's got this fundamental flaw that if he can't correct it or can't improve it enough I do kind of wonder just where he in particular can rise up on that list because it is especially with the way the league is now if, it, if this was eight ten years ago I don't think it would necessarily matter but the way the league is now you have to be some kind of a threat and right now like you can basically just stand in the paint and you're not have to worry about it and it doesn't necessarily matter in the regular season as much but in the playoffs because right. you ramp up the quality of your opponents and the planning and the execution and I the, the example of that and DeRozan has gotten way better is probably DeMar DeRozan that you can yep. you can succeed as a as a talented but imperfect player but then eventually you're going to run into something and I think that or that's, even Russell Westbrook sure Westbrook might even be a better example and Westbrook yeah. though but the reason why I think it might be DeRozan and not Westbrook is this with Simmons limitations you know he could correct those and that's the way he gets here I think sometimes people lose sight of the difference between all NBA and like an MVP caliber player. And I've used this stat yes. for a long time that there hasn't been a team other than the three Pistons teams, which is a pretty big exception. And it's funny that it happened to be the same franchise three times to right. win a championship without a player who had already won. And that's very different from would eventually win. Cause you could think of it as a lagging indicator had already won an MVP since it was Bird's, fir- Bird's first title. And the reason that team hadn't done it is because Bird hadn't won his MVP yet. That happened a little bit later. And then there were a couple right. a little bit before that. The Sonics that won. The I, I think Walton hadn't... I can't remember if Walton had already won an MVP at that point. But there were a couple of teams in that range that, that did it. But that's not the modern NBA anymore. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting pretty far back at that point. Well, and even, and even like you said, even Bill Walton and... and, and with Bill Walton and... Uh, um, Bill Walton and Larry Bird and even Isaiah Thomas. I mean, those are three guys where, you know, Isaiah had made three first team all NBAs already. He just was playing at the same time as Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, right? Like, and and Bill Walton, if healthy, is one of the probably 10 best players of all time. So like, to your point, even when you're looking at those examples, there's really only one example, which is that 04 Pistons team that doesn't fit that paradigm. 
And that 04 right. Pistons team makes sense, first of all, because of the concentration of talent, but also, you know, what happened around them. LeBron's team wasn't ready yet, wasn't all the way there yet. Right, it was, then, at maybe the, it was at maybe the nadir of the league's talent level. Yeah, and then that Lakers team just burst apart at the seams. So, yep. you know, like the, the, it makes sense that that team is the exception to prove the rule because they were better than most teams that fit that bill, and the league, their competition was worse. And so what I wanted to get at with Simmons is this idea that he can be a great player without a jump shot, but and he can get theoretically even into MVP voting, and that's another distinction that needs to be made between because of the nature of MVP and then it's not being best player, but I don't think he can be the best player on a championship team without that. Fortunately for the Sixers and what makes their situation different, they have another player who could be the best player in a championship team in Joel Embiid. Yes. And well, and that's the and that's the thing to me is that I've heard people say that they maybe they think Simmons is better than Giannis already. Maybe Simmons is the best player on his team. Like no, <laughs> in both those cases, to me, it's not that close yet. And that's not a it's not a knock on Simmons who has been tremendous, but it's that you know I think you know Giannis has to me done a lot more, and, and Embiid to me has a ceiling that that unless Simmons gets a lot better in his jump shot, I just don't think he can reach. Still plenty to talk about with Tim, but I want to take a quick moment to tell you about our friends at TrueCar. If you are looking to buy a car, you are probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It is enough to confuse anybody. All you are really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from TrueCar. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. TrueCar dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because TrueCar shows you what other people paid for that same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so that they can win your business. So when you are ready to buy a new car or a used car, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. So the last thing I wanted to talk with you about a little bit, this is going to be a very different offseason because so few teams have money. And there yep. are a couple of talented teams that do, the Sixers being one of them, the Pacers potentially being another, though they could go in a couple different directions. So one of the ways that these limited teams can get better is by hiring the right coach. And I think for Milwaukee, I wrote for The Athletic that this is the most important offseason that they have had since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was on the team. And the reason for that is not because yeah, since no, the moment they traded, since the, since the offseason they traded Kareem, exactly. Right? I mean, I think that I think that's what you'd argue. I, I yeah, didn't absolutely. I didn't want to end it with the womp womp that is that, but that was the implication. And yeah, oh, and for so sure. for for Milwaukee, what what makes it different? And there are a couple other teams that I think are in this boat. Is that they do not have this opportunity to make a game change in terms of their personnel and all likelihood. But getting the right coach can put them in the right circumstance. And I think generally speaking. Teams have done a, a really good job of getting the right person for for their position. I think Kakashkov, I don't know a ton about him, but from what I've heard, he makes a lot of sense for where Phoenix is going. Make even more sense if they happen to be in position to draft Slovenian Luka Doncic, who has played under Kakashkov before. But I think the Knicks did a nice job with Fizdale as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I, I know Igor a little bit, and I, I know his background a lot. Like I said, I'm in Salt Lake City. I mean, the Jazz are thrilled for him. And they, the Jazz would all be the first to tell you that he deserves a lot of credit for 
his ability to develop players. And, you know, he's been part, he's been a big part of not that, you know, they kind of, you know, Quinn Snyder's thing is the, the strength of the team is the team, which is a, a very ridiculous cliche phrase, but, you know, being around this team, like that is true. And they all kind of believe in that. And that goes for the way they play on the court and also goes for their staff. I mean, they're, you know, everybody obviously praises Quinn Snyder, but from the front office to him to the, the play, everybody's quick to say, no, this is a team effort all the way around. And, you know, Igor's a guy that has bounced around the league a lot. He's been in a lot of places and not as a negative, but he, he has great relationships around the league. People in, you know, work with Alvin Gentry under, you know, with when Steve Kerr was running that team, he was there in Phoenix. You know, he, he's been, I think he was with Kyrie in Cleveland. He's been, he's been here with the Jazz for a bit. Um, he, he's really bounced around and, you know, been in a lot of places and learned a lot of stuff. He obviously did a great job of Slovenia. And, um, I, I think that he, like you said, and I think you and Nate talked about it on the podcast. Uh, I think Nate might have said it. You know, for a team that was, has desperately been in need of development and structure and a system, he's going to bring that to the Suns. And I think he's got a chance to be really successful. You know, I think he's got a chance to maybe utilize Dragon Bender in ways that they haven't yet. You know, I think he'll help Devin Booker get better. You know, whoever they get in the draft, you know, whether they do get Luka Doncic, who he coaches Slovenia, whether they get DeAndre Ayton, whether they get Marvin Bagley, I mean, whoever they, whoever they go get, you know, I think you're going to see that team is going to look much better, not necessarily from a, a win standpoint, but I think he'll have a similar impact to what Brett Brown did early in Philly, what Kenny Atkinson did early in Brooklyn, what Brad Stevens did early in Boston in terms of, you know, what Quinn did in, in, in Utah. In terms of, you'll see, I think, tangible signs of improvement from those players, which if you're the Suns with all the high picks they've had, you know, it's not that they, they don't have talent, they have raw talent that hasn't really developed in a lot of instances. And they have a guy in Devin Booker who's good but needs to develop more. And I think Igor will be able to help with that. And, and I'm with you on Fisdale. I, I mean, I, I think Fisdale, you know, obviously the situation in Memphis didn't work out great. But, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a little unfair, I think, for people to go, well, he didn't get along with a European big and Marcus All. How is he going to get along with Porzingis? I mean, yeah, that's obviously an issue. But are we, you know, if he didn't get along with, you know, an American star on one team, or would he go to another team and go, man, is, how is he going to get along with this? You know, if he, say, he coached. I don't know, pick a team. Say he coached the Wizards and he got in a fight with John Wall. If he then went and coached some other team. Like the, the Blazers, player. let's say. The Blazers, right. When he go to the Blazers, then, oh, well, he's not going to get along with Damian Lillard now. I mean, no, I don't think anybody would say that. I think they'd say, well, he's got to develop a relationship with Damian Lillard. And, you know, I, from, my, from what I know about Chris Dats, which is I know him a little bit, I mean, I think he has been in a situation that's been a dumpster fire for a while and he wants structure and a guy that's going to coach him and to come in and instill a system and, and work, right? And I, I think Fizz, you know, I he did some good things his first year in Memphis, working with not a lot. They changed their offense. They you know, they modernized a lot of things. I think he'll be able to utilize, you know, the stuff he wanted to do with Marcus All is stuff that Chris Tapps has already, that's what Chris Tapps' strengths are. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, he'll play to what Chris Tapps is good at. And I think, you know, Chris Tapps will probably welcome that. So um, he, he's part of, he's, he was part of that Miami staff for a long time, you know, has good relationships there. You know, Small is one of the best coaches in the league, I think. You know, he raves about him publicly and privately. You know, I, I don't know anybody other than Marcus Allen's ever had a problem with Fisdale. So, look, I think, you know, for a Knicks team that, that really needs some stability, uh, that has, you know, privately to me and, and publicly also preached that they're, look, we're going to be rebuilding. This is going to be a patient process. We're not going to do some of the mistakes we've done in the past. We're going to, you know, draft, be in the draft a few years here. We're going to develop guys. You know, I think, you know, this past year they were trying to win games. You know, it, not that they're going to be trying to lose games, but they – 
they felt the need to try to show Porzingis after what happened that they were not, you know, going to be winning 12 games a year. But, you know, I think with him being out next year, pretty much no matter who they draft, you know, maybe they jump up and get a Doncic or Aiton and they jump up a lot. But I think kind of regardless of who they draft, they're probably going to be in a, a similar point next year in terms of, you know, trying to build and they're probably not going to win many games and, they're going to get another decent pick. I, I, I'm high Nelikina. I think he can become a player. So I, I really like the move for them. And I, I think as long as they're patient and they go about this the right way finally in New York and have a real rebuild for the first time in decades, I, I think they've got a chance to turn this thing around and, and have the Knicks be pretty good pretty quick. I mean, remember, they, they have a top 10 pick this year that may jump up. They have Nelikina. They have probably another top 10 pick coming next year. And they have Porzingis coming back next year. And they're probably going to have room for a Max guy next summer. So, you know, if you have two or three really good-looking young guys, and you have Porzingis, and you have you know a, a max free agent that comes in next summer, they could be pretty good pretty quick. It doesn't have to be a you know four, five-year drawn-out thing. Now they have to hit the picks, and Fizdale has to do a good job, and they have to not have the same kind of drama the Gardens had in the past, which, you know, look, as somebody who was in New York a long time, I'm the first to say that having things work out for the Knicks has not exactly been something anybody should bet on anytime recently. But I think they have put themselves in a position to go about this the right way if they do act well from here. And I think that hiring Fizz was a good step in the right direction for them. Do you have anybody in mind as the best coach for the Bucks? Because I think that's the, the, the biggest job out there in terms of importance. But also now that the Knicks job is out, is out because money probably would have been better in New York. It's the best job too. Yeah, I think it's the best job. There are there are real issues there. Sure, um, there are real issues there with ownership. Um, you know, I know I know my pal Brian Windhorst has spoken to that, and he is correct. I mean, you know, the the weird trade off situation with Wes Edens and Mark Lazary. I mean, that's why Justin Zanuck is here in Utah instead of running the Bucks right now. Um, you know, there was weird issues with stuff that happened there last year. Um, I know coaches that are in the mix there that are concerned about that setup. You know, so I think that's something they have to work through. But look, the bottom line is in the NBA, there aren't a lot of times when you get an opportunity to coach a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? I mean, that is a, you know, there are coaches who spend their entire careers hoping to have a team where they have a guy that's a top five guy in the league on their team. Like, think about Budenholzer, right? Who I think, Mike Budenholzer, who's in Atlanta, I think is the best guy for the job. I think he's the best coach available. You look at his Atlanta teams, right? They had a 60-win team. They went and made the playoffs four years in a row. They had really interesting teams to watch. They moved the ball. They, they played well together. They did a lot of great stuff. They developed young players, right? Like, they did a lot of things right. They didn't have a player anywhere near as good as Giannis. And so, to me, if you can put him in Milwaukee with Giannis, you know, they've got Thon Maker, who, again, for the second year in a row, looked good in the playoffs. I, I would like to see Budenholzer you know, with a chance to develop a guy like him who has a, a really intriguing skill set next to Giannis. You know, Chris Middleton, I thought, got to a level I didn't think he could get to in the playoffs. I thought he was fantastic in that series. I thought that was encouraging for them. Uh, Sterling, Sterling Brown showed good signs as a, uh, a rookie second-round pick. In terms of what he could do, I think Malcolm Brogdon could continue to get better. I mean, I know you, you know, Nate, I, I know went crazy every time he would dribble, 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 whenever he got the ball. I think that's the kind of thing that I think Budenholzer could, you know, work out of a guy like that and kind of improve him on the margins. You know, you'd like to think he could get more out of Eric Bledsoe was a real disappointment. I mean, there's a lot of talent there. And I think, you know, like you said, this is a huge. The next 18 months, I guess, not even 18, I guess 15 months are are the biggest the Bucks have had since that summer they traded Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They had some really good teams in the 80s and late 90s, and, you know, obviously now they have Giannis. But you look at that team, and they need, the, over the next year and a half, they need to prove to Giannis that they're a team that could compete for championships and can attract big talent and big coaches, right? I mean, that if you're going to keep a guy like him, that's what you have to do. And if they get Budenholzer in there and he shows some signs next year and they take steps forward, they're, they could potentially have a ton of cap space next summer uh, to go out and, and get a, a star player or two to play. 
play with him if he could draw guys there. Um, they're going to have a brand-new arena. Uh, they have to make a decision on Jabari Parker. They have a lot of stuff ahead, and I, I think they need to get this coaching hire right. And, well, look, if they'd gone and hired a guy like Igor or somebody, I would have thought that was a good move for them. Uh, I think in the situation they're in, you know, I think the surest thing is the way they need to go. And to me, if Budenholzer is willing to go there and they can get that done, I think they need to get that done because he, I think, has the best chance of unlocking this team in the short term. And not that they should be doing everything on a short-term basis because Giannis is still a young guy and you want to grow with him for the long term. But you need to convince him, in my opinion, that that's the place he wants to be. And bringing in a, a coach with a real track record like that that I think could you know unlock a lot of his skills, I think is the uh, is the best way forward for them uh, to try to you know go about this path they have over the next year and a half or so of trying to convince Giannis that Milwaukee's the place he wants to be long term. Boonholzer has also in the past built a successful defense around a team that wasn't great at defensive rebounding, which I think is important for the Bucks because especially if Giannis is the four long term, which I think is the best position for him, whether it's Don, John Henson, whoever else, they're probably not going to be a good defensive rebounding team. So they well, can... if they're going to be their if they're going to be their best version of themselves, it's going to be Thon and Giannis, right? And right. that's to your point, that's you know they're that that line that front line has a lot of strengths, but that is not one of them. And while Hawks University is a much larger thing than Mike Budenholzer, I mean, Kenny Atkinson going away and all that, we haven't really gotten to see much from their guys the last couple of years, though I think Torian Prince has improved a lot internally. Another player who could benefit from Budenholzer's approach, and I think the stability that he would bring, is Tony Snell. Snell is an imperfect player, and what he can bring, though, is this kind of low-maintenance consistency, which is incredibly important on a good team. And if that cons- low-maintenance consistency is at a high enough level, he could start. Otherwise, it can be in the on the bench. And they've gone just with this throw stuff at the wall and see what works, both under Kidd and Prunty and so much recency bias. And it's just a lot, of, a lot of strangeness. I think that Budenholzer would put those guys in the right position because he has done a very good job during his... Hawks tenure of both encouraging the players who aren't getting regular minutes and making sure that the best players get on the floor. And while I have had issues with certain elements of his playoff rotations, most notably keeping guys out with foul trouble, but that is far throughout the league. That is, that is something that gets spread. I think Budenholzer is the best shot of the play, of the coaches that I know well. There could certainly be untapped coaches that, that aren't in that situation. Kokoshkov is somebody that I'm not familiar enough with to make that sort of pronouncement. But of the people I know that are available, I think he's the best player. Yeah, I agree. I, I really couldn't agree more. You know, it'll it, but the, but the interesting thing too is that there's going to be more jobs available, right? I mean, I, I think the chances of Dwayne Casey getting fired have exponentially increased. There's still an opportunity for change, I think, to happen in Portland. Um, you know, look, who knows what's going to happen in Cleveland, given the way that situation has played out. You know, there there could be some more that pop open um, that that do change the paradigm a little bit, and you know, I, I think that will you know that will be a factor to me in terms of you know even what a guy like Budenholzer does or what, what some of these other places do going forward. If you have, say, Terry Stotts and Dwayne Casey under the market, like they are good coaches, that could change things. And just then there's two more jobs with talent that, that guys might gravitate toward. And that also doesn't count the Clippers who, you know, look, I think it was, I, I may be reading too much into it, but I do think it was kind of weird that Mike Woodson was quoted in the New York Post, uh, my old paper by my old colleague Mark Berman saying he'd be happy being David Fisdale's number two. Um, he already is somebody's number two, that being Doc Rivers. Not that coaches don't change staffs all the time. They do. And Mike has a relationship with the Knicks and he interviews for the job. But it, I just thought it was an odd thing to say. And there's been a lot of smoke about, you know, potentially Doc being out at some point this summer. And I, I wouldn't be stunned if that happened. So I, I think even though there are a few jobs still open and uh, Charlotte and 
and Orlando and, and obviously Milwaukee. I, I don't think that you know we've necessarily gotten to the end of the road in, in terms of what the, the, the shape of the coaching market might look like between now and, and the end of this carousel going around. That's a really interesting point. You know it far better than I do. And I want to end this. I would call this an unfair question, except that I know that you've been thinking about it a lot. We just didn't talk about it when we were talking about the show. Is yeah. I don't want when any of the prefacing, because you and I have both talked about this a lot in other formats. What do you think is the most likely outcome with Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs? Let's say by March 1st of 2019. Not what team is he on, but where does this go? Oh, so by next year's trade deadline. Yeah, oh, after okay. next year's trade uh, deadline. I don't think he's going to be on the Spurs. I mean, I, I think, I think, I mean, I, I know Nate's been very strident about how the biggest thing here is the injury. I just think there's a fundamental breakdown in communication here. And, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that there isn't discussion, right? Like I reported a few weeks ago after, you know, while doing some reporting on it while the Spurs were in, in Oakland for that series that, you know, Greg Popovich and, and, and Kawhi Leonard still talk a lot, um, which I know that, you know, Ramon and Shelburne and Mike Wright and their big piece, you know, also got into that they still talk and they're friendly and there's not, there aren't issues there, right? From that standpoint. But for, organizationally, there's a real breakdown. And, you know, I think, you know, the Spurs have, have never been an organization that's been against guys getting second opinions. But, like, think about it. They're paying Kawhi Leonard $20 million a year, right? And they basically haven't had control of his medical stuff for months. And it's just a very odd situation on all fronts. And I, I'm not saying that Kawhi isn't hurt. I'm not saying he was wrong to do what he's done in any way, right? Like, I think to Nate's point, you know, I know, again, like, I, I know he's talked about it a lot. These players are, get to the NBA because they work insanely hard and they're insanely competitive. And for, for everything that Kawhi has done on the court, it would be odd for him to just like say, yeah, I'm not going to play because I don't feel like it, right? But I think when you look at the way this has broken down and with, a, with an organization like the Spurs that never has anything get out of their internal dialogue, get out publicly into the open air so many times and have – Manu Ginobili, you know, saying multiple times, like, you know, yeah, we just, we haven't really known what's going on. This has been the strangest season of my career, and I don't really, you know, we have to just play with who we have. And, you know, Tony Parker, other issues with him in the past aside, saying, you know, I, I agree with Nate that, you know, I think Nate said that, you know, yeah, this injury might have been way worse. It might not be the same injury. It might not be, but the, the players, I think, are in, are in a disconnect with him because of the fact that he, I, I mean, I know independently from Mike and Ramona's reporting that he, he did look good when he worked out on multiple occasions, and he did look like a guy who could play and then he wouldn't play and that left people confused and there's been you know breakdowns in communication between his his representation in the spurs and i just think that you know when you look at the Kawhi situation to me this falls into the same camp as the jimmy butler situation as the demarcus Cousins situation where okay if you can offer the guy the supermax are you offering him the supermax if the answer is no, he's getting traded because unless unless he's so injured that he can't pass a physical or no one will take a chance on trading him, I think that the options are sign him the extension, offer the extension, he says no, don't offer him the extension. Obviously, if you sign him the extension, he's there, at least for a year. If you don't offer him the extension or he doesn't sign the extension, there's only one option. That's the trader. And I feel like with the amount of teams that are going to be interested in trading for Kawhi, um, I think the offers will go up pretty high. I don't think this is going to be like a situation where teams aren't going to be interested. I think a lot of teams will be interested. You know, Philly, Boston, the Lakers, the Clippers, the Cavs. Uh, you know, I think some other teams, you could see other teams get in the mix. I mean, I, maybe the Wizards, you know, maybe the Raptors. I mean, who knows? So I think a lot of teams get in the mix here uh, for him. And I, and I think that 
to me, given where the situation has gone to, if they're not going to offer him that supermax, and I don't think as of now they're going to offer it to him, to me they only have one path. And I, I think, you know, kind of people around the league, I, I think they've kind of come to, I think, you know, the general opinion around the league from the people I've talked to is that Kawhi isn't going to get offered the supermax. And if he's not going to get offered the supermax, he's going to get traded. So I don't think he's going to start next season on the Spurs, personally, with the caveat being that if he can't pass a physical or he isn't healthy, then perhaps he won't be traded because of that. And maybe this still rectifies itself in the future. But I, I think if I, I think that it's more likely than not that unless they do offer him that supermax, he won't be on the team, you know, maybe even by July first if he gets traded at the draft. And I, I think certainly by um sometime this summer he'll you know, even if they have to wait till August because of the draft rules. You know, if they draft guys and then they acquire him later, like what happened with Wiggins and Kevin Love. I, I think that it's I think the most likely path at this point is that Kawhi has played his last game for the Spurs. I don't know if it was as a Nate tribute or not, but you got to, you did something that he does very often, which is make a series of points. And the last point you made is where I would have started, which is that is the offering of the extension. And I think while Nate is right that his health is important, the single biggest swing factor here is the Holtz. And now with the reporting that is out there, we need to pluralize Holtz because that matters. These, you know, that, that Peter and his wife, whose name is escaping me, are divorcing. That makes this more complicated. And they right. need to figure out, well, you know, is this the guy? And, we're I, gonna and, I, and I will say, I, I will just say real quick. I don't think that they wouldn't sign him. The entire history of Spurs ownership, to me, would indicate that they will not avoid signing him because ownership says we're not going to spend the money. I don't think that. I don't think. I don't personally think. Well, it's that it's not about the spending the money. It's about the importance of making the offer because a designated veteran offer, just like a designated rookie, that is an ownership decision, not a general manager decision. And right. I don't know. And and again, you know, I don't love talking but about guess, the, the squishy. The squishy yeah. part of this, but yeah. the squishy part matters because when yeah. it all boils down, this is also true in politics, when it boils down to an individual decision maker, every single factor they consider when making their decision is relevant to consider. And I don't know the Holtz well enough to know exactly what they're doing. So then the yeah. idea of I, the... All I, all, I, all I meant was, all I meant was their, basically their entire history has just been to, if RC comes to them or Pop comes to them and says, hey, this is what we should do they say okay so i don't what i'm saying is i don't think that rc and i don't think that greg popovich and rc buford are going to sit down and make a decision about Kawhi and this veteran extension that's going to be impacted by this divorce i could be wrong about that but i don't think that is going to factor into it i think that the squishy stuff to me that matters more is the relationship between Kawhi, Kawhi's representation and the franchise I think that is where this has been an issue. I think Kawhi was healthy this year. This isn't an issue, right? Or even if the communication was better. I don't think this is an issue. I think he's getting the Supermax and he's signing it. I think it's everything that has happened over the past, whatever it's been, seven months. I think that is what's going to, I think how that is resolved and what the eventual outcome is there in terms of what side they come down on. I think that is going to determine whether they offer the Supermax or not. I, I All I'm trying to say is I really don't think that ownership would say 
say to them, you know, if RC goes to them and says, listen, Pop and I have talked about this. We know that it's been a weird year. We think that we need to offer Kawhi the Supermax because he's too good of a player to let go. It would be the antithesis of everything that's happened in San Antonio over the last 25 years or 20 years or whatever for the Holtz. Whichever one of them is in charge, you know, I, the, the wife took, I think her name is Julia or Julianne, I can't remember, but I think she took over a couple of years ago officially. Uh, whoever, whichever one is in charge, it would be very unlike them to come back to Pop and RC and say, hey, you know what, guys, we're just not going to give out that money. Sorry. I just don't see that factoring in to what they're doing. I, I think it would be the basketball side saying, hey, this is what we're going to do, or hey, you know, or, or either way, like, hey, we're going to offer this extension. We'll see if he takes it. Or, hey, you know what? We don't think this is the right investment. We're going to look to trade him. I think either way, they're not going to step in because that, that's just been the opposite of how they've acted over their, you know, two decades or so or running the team. That's certainly fair. And the Buford pop combination has done enough to earn that trust. So they could get that, but I'm I'm fascinated to see how it works out, and it's a massive shift around the league, and also a player, and we've seen this in a lot of different circumstances, wields so much power because of the prospect of their own free agency. Because at that point, with the way the league didn't fix the entirety of the extension system, that player is going to be a free agent at the end of the season, and so if they tell a team or they tell the whole league, I'm not signing with these teams, then they are going to treat that player as a rental. And generally speaking, that means those teams will not offer enough in a trade for the Spurs to accept it. And so that's how you can narrow the field of suitors, is by basically diminishing everybody else's offers. And I think that happened to a point with Kyrie, though the Celtics made a robust offer, then ended up not working out super duper well for the Cavs for other reasons. And why you know it'll be a similar circumstance because teams that are getting him on a rental generally speaking the exception of this being the Serge Ibaka magic deal and that's why having a GM at the end of the rope is extremely dangerous but generally speaking those teams aren't going to make offers good enough to get to be the best offer yeah or you know the Pacers also certainly worked out getting all deep on some bonus too for a rental but yeah no it's it's uh look it's going to be a fascinating summer I mean you have Paul George on the market, you have Kawhi potentially on the market, you have LeBron on the market, you know, wouldn't surprise me if, you know, say a team like Golden State, right? I mean, I think we both think they're going to win the title. If they somehow don't, you could see them maybe trying to make a cost-cutting move of moving a significant player on their team. You know, you've got a lot of teams that are in weird limbo in terms of the way their season's ended. Portland, Toronto, Washington, Miami. I'm trying to think of if there's any other ones. Obviously, Oklahoma City with the Paul George thing. Um, Minnesota could be an interesting situation with, uh, you know, what do they do? They potentially try to move on from Andrew Wiggins this summer. You know, does Jimmy Butler somehow signal he doesn't want to be there anymore? I mean, there, there, there's a lot. DeMarcus Cousins, I didn't even mention, is going to be a free agent. Like, what, what happens with him? It, the league is in a fascinating place. And uh, I am I am genuinely curious to see how the next few months play out because, you know, as you've laid out, there's not a ton of teams with cap space. And there's a lot of teams that are going to feel the need to shake things up. And that could lead to... Like I said, maybe some unexpected guys get fired. Maybe some unexpected players get traded. Maybe very little happens at all, and it kind of is a dam that builds up for over the next you know, 8 to 12 months until next summer when there's more cap space and stuff going on. But 
we've gotten accustomed to the summers being pretty wild in the NBA, you know, especially for people like us that are covering it year round. And I think, you know, between Kawhi and Paul George and DeMarcus and Paul and LeBron and, you know, like I said, these teams that are kind of floundering now and like Toronto, Washington, Miami and Portland, what are they going to do? And I mean, it's, it's got the potential, I think, to be a pretty wild summer in terms of how these things develop and, and where some of these teams and players and, you know, decisions go in, in terms of how the league is going to be shaped over the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where it goes and it's it's going to be a lot of fun thank you so much for taking the time anytime man i always love to do it look forward to seeing you again too thanks again to tim bontemps for taking the time to come on you can read him at the washington post you can also subscribe to his monday morning post up weekly email newsletter which i really enjoy it's a a great distillation of everything that's going on around the league and he does a nice job of kind of keeping the focus on really everything that matters i i really enjoy it something i look forward to every week you can also of course follow him on twitter at tim bontemps t-i-m-b-o-n-t-e-m-p-s and yes this is a really fun time we recorded this as we mentioned numerous times throughout the podcast, before Friday's games, Friday's game shifted it a little bit. You know, the Warriors didn't play well. The Pelicans did. Houston was awesome. And Utah came out a little bit flat. So we'll see where it goes from here. And then I'm putting this out there before Saturday's games, though I'm sure many of you will listen to it after that or even later in the weekend or week. And that's part of the reason I designed Real GM Radio to be the way that it is. So, so much fun stuff going on. You can check out my work. My offseason previews have begun in earnest for The Athletic this year. I think there are six out already. I have another four or five that are done at this point. Going to have all 30 done by mid-June is the tentative plan. I like to, you know, the last ones will probably be the two finals teams coming out right after the finals. Because once the draft happens, that's a totally different kind of offseason preview. And that we'll be doing on Dunkton, which is something else you can do if you want to check out my work. Nate and I are also doing off-season previews, so they'll kind of... I see them as complementary pieces, but not necessarily overlapping because we prioritize different things and certain elements are easier to write about and certain elements are easier to talk about and I'm very cognizant of that difference. Also, Nate and I are doing the Twitter NBA show, which is our live commentary on games, kind of like an alternate announcing track. That is available. We're doing that for most most playoff games, not every single one. Nate has the schedule, but you can also just kind of keep an eye on it. I tweet out about it a lot. And have a new piece coming out for Real GM probably this weekend on a topic that I've thought about writing about a lot, and it's actually going to be the first in a three or four part series, depending on how much time I have, on basically how I watch film and what I'm looking for and the mistakes that can be made. And so the first one is about offense and more ball handling. And so what do I look for in a primary ball handler vision and separation and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm going to do one on defense, definitely going to do also one on actually how I choose the film that I watch, because that's a question that I get asked a lot for draft prospects is, oh, what are you, what are you looking for? And so I'm going to do that, that those two are definitely going to come out during May. And then I have an idea for a fourth one. It's a little bit more abstract. I don't know if I'll have time for it. That could end up happening. And also all of those will be turned into what we call Danny's story time, which are audio versions of those pieces, which are on the Patreon that Nate and I do, patreon.com slash Duncan Wuru. So you can check that out as well. If you want to support this show, really do appreciate it. Lots of ways you can do so. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing, but it is great if it's Apple. If you want to be super awesome, you can do it in both places. If you listen using something other than Apple podcasts, and you can also subscribe download every episode. Those are still important for podcast metrics and you can spread the word however you see fit, telling friends, telling people on the internet, whatever works. And there are still, you know, 
as much as people think everybody knows about whatever thing somebody's in, it, it really isn't true. You get, I get people all the time like, oh, I didn't know you had your own podcast. I do. This predates Dunked On, of course, by a long time. And you can also support our sponsors. So for this episode, BetDSI with the Real GM promo code, you can get up to $2,500 on your first deposit, which is awesome. Hims, wellness brand for men. You can get the trial month for just $5 for hims.com slash real, R-E-A-L. And then TrueCar, great place to buy new car, used car. There we don't have a promo code. Just check it out. Check out TrueCar. And I'll be back next week. I actually do have a guest pretty much lined up. We'll see if that actually works out. And as always, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I promise I will take the time to read it. I might not be able to respond because I'm super busy, but insight is important to me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. Do it for the team. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars.